and I do encourage these kind of folks to sell retail. You got to either drive your drive a set of tires off of your pickup every year, go into farmers markets all over the country, or you uh, or you start a CSA, deliver directly to your customers on a weekly basis. That's to me, the only way to survive today as an organic farmer of a, of a modest scale or a small scale, you have to get very intimate with your customers. You have to take really good care of them and uh, feed them really good food and ask them and communicate to them why they should pay you a fair price for it. You can play around on the computer and do all kinds of e-commerce and everything, but when it comes to food, you actually got to get the product there physically to the people one way or another and if there's any great distance that has to be crossed in order to do that then you know you're paying fedex or something it gets to be very expensive so i i think that really the only way to do it well is to serve a local community It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, if I told somebody in California that I'm going to talk to a farmer today, and not just any farmer, but a farmer they may have heard before, and many of them would tell me it must be Tom Willie. Sure enough, it is Tom Willie. Hey, hey, Tom, I don't know how it's taken me a while to get you on Farm to Table Talk, but I'm glad we get to visit today. Yeah, well, thank you for the very generous introduction. <laughs> you know, when I came to the state early on, I remember hearing people talking about organic farmers and ecological farming, and before it became fashionable to talk about taking care of the soil, and there were people saying, well, you need to meet Tom Willie." And I think I went down to a small farmers conference or something okay. like that in yeah, Fresno. There, there is a small and farmer. and you were you were a speaker. And I don't know how many years ago that was, Tom. I don't either. <laughs> it's a while. A few years. It's been a little while, I imagine. Yeah. Up until that time, at the other places I've been around the country, you didn't hear about small farmers or small farms or small farming. It's a funny thing to call a farm, maybe, just to call it small necessarily. But when you consider the contrast was industrialization and scale, then that really got people's attention. Because it was the time, and it has been this way for a while, people thought if you're going to farm, you got to just keep getting as big as you can. And that was the only way to survive. Well, Earl Betts started that back in the... You know, back in the 70s or whatever, I mean, you know, all farms used to be a lot smaller than a, a great number of them are today. Um, but uh, you're right, it has industrialized a lot. And when I first came to Fresno to learn to be a farmer, I'd say in the mid 70s, um, Fresno County at that time, maybe it still is, had the, had the unique distinction of uh, having the most small family scale farms of uh, anywhere in California, maybe even the country, but also the largest um, specialty agribusiness farms uh, in the country as well. You know, so it was, you know, a, a, a unique contrast that may yet continue to this day. I haven't seen statistics on that recently. You know, that's really interesting because I, I hadn't thought about that because when you go to the different parts of the states and you say you're from California agriculture, 
used to be the first thing they think about was large scale big big agriculture in in the central valley but now because of eco farm and some of the other programs people are starting to realize that there's different size and shapes of farmers in california yeah well you know um i'm 75 years of age now um and people of my vintage that grew up on farms around here and a number of whom i know and some of them still farm um they grew up on 40 acre raisin farms or 40 acre tree fruit farms hereabouts and uh uh you know back in the 1950s and uh you know those families could live a a, a, a moderate middle you know middle scale life and they could send their children to college all of these people went to college and that was all done on 40s acres of raisins or tree fruit you know um uh, you can't mm -hmm. do that anymore um well we did make a living on 80 acres of intensive uh organic vegetables so our farm was never any larger than that and it probably was originally on 20 acres um and uh so we we did make our entire living well, on a relatively small farm probably since from about 1985 to 2017 and uh to be hard pressed to do that now and uh we had the fortune of being in a historical moment it was kind of like the birth of the modern organic farming movement. And that was uh, a great refuge for about 30 years for um, modest family scale farms. It, it no longer really is that anymore, but it was. Cool. So we, were, we were fortunate to be there and take advantage of that. Yeah. Now, let me let me catch up to that point, because you were talking about when you grew up, what it was like where I grew up in the middle of central Illinois. Uh, probably most of the farmers had, a, oh, you know, over a hundred acres, maybe a couple hundred acres, a lot of yeah. them. But every right. single, every single farm up and down the road, almost every single farm, the only reason they grew crops was to feed the livestock. And and uh, initially, you know, soybeans was a new idea, but mm -hmm. the corn, everything you grew, you you had enough hogs and some cattle to mm -hmm. be able to have everything walk off the farm and um and you would and that was the only way you did it but then there was well, that, that was a value added proposition <laughs> yeah yeah that's right that's right yeah and, and then sooner or later they found out that wait a minute the price of livestock's not getting high enough and we can make more money not having a livestock and taking the fences out and before you know it they started doing what earl butts said and that is um fence row to fence row and then you didn't even have the fence rows yeah, so now I would imagine the average farm in that neck of the woods, uh, Bloomsdale, Illinois, uh, would be a couple thousand acres instead of a couple, at least hundred, at a least. couple hundred acres. Yeah. Well, when you when you talk to people about can you get by with this one person with good equipment, then if you're lucky, you might be able to do it on twenty five hundred acres, but it's unusual. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and the way that that is mechanized now and with Roundup Ready, where you just, you know, spray the weeds, you don't have to cultivate or anything. I don't know. I've heard farms, farmers, you know, I think farmer, maybe two people could farm a couple of thousand acres themselves, pretty much. And uh, I've heard farmers say it's pretty boring because all you do is put the seed in the ground and go out and spray a couple of times and then go out and harvest, you know, three months later and or four months later and uh they, they don't find it as intellectually challenging as we found 
biological agriculture out here and uh, when we were trying to kind of invent methods of uh creating productive uh organic systems yeah yeah you know uh we used to have talk about crop rotation and at one stage in our certainly our farms you did corn soybeans oats alfalfa you'd rotate everything and uh but then the new rotation sometime after i left became corn soybeans and florida there you go exactly yeah. and and <laughs> and there were there really were people that would you know get the crop in and they go down and and live in the sun belt until they came back to do the spring work yeah yeah but it's hard it's harder even for them to do that now but you you look at this time then you look at where we are right now um and and you've seen a lot happen in california is this a good time to be a small farmer is this a is this a good time in your mind to be able to get into farming there's always a way but it's a much more challenging time right now than it was for us in 1980 even though that was a very challenging time as well because there was so little knowledge at that at that moment uh about how to do organic farming um as i say it was very hard to grow it then but it was very easy to sell it and get a, a very good price for what you could produce now today in an organic system it's much easier to grow it but it's very hard to sell it for a price that will support uh, a decent family income so different challenge um different times but there's always a way i mean we have some very good friends um in north carolina that uh they just they own about 10 acres of land um they only farming one or two acres of it uh they have uh, probably are 250 or 300 members csa if you know what that is community supported agriculture uh project uh where you're producing a box of produce for an individual family and which you deliver to them directly on a weekly basis so they have a system like that they grow probably 40 different crops and uh you know they're making they're making a fair living at it they're probably netting maybe a hundred thousand dollars a year and there's two you know a husband and wife that work full time full time at that um but they're they're very satisfied with that um but um there are some models that work today but you have to be very close and very intimate with your customers and you have to serve them very well and uh ask them to give you a fair price for for work and the produce that you put on their tables so you know i used to be when you think of somebody said well i need we need to make more money than we're making right now it used to be they think the only way forward was to get larger so well that was a fallacy that was sold to us by you know earl butts who i believe was ronald reagan's secretary of agriculture or maybe it was farther back than reagan even i don't remember who was president when earl butts was running roughshod over American farmland. But um, yeah, the tide really began to turn after World War II. Um, during World War II, obviously, if farmers could get the crops off, they got rewarded very well because there was a scarcity. In a wartime, there's always a scarcity of foods. And uh, after World War II, we kind of adopted an industrial policy. We, we kind of were the top dogs on the planet. We, you know, Ford and GM and all those guys opened up huge manufacturing plants and they wanted labor. They needed labor. 
So, you know, that kind of created this. And the chemical companies that were producing munitions during the war um, were looking for an outlet for their products. And they go like, oh, well, we could change these into pesticides and fertilizers. So let's do that. And and we'll put tractors out there and and we'll we'll get these farmers off the damn farm, get them into the factories and working for us. And so that was kind of a process that began in the early 1950s. And it's continued until today, you know. And, uh, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people say, ah, you know, the farm was drudgery. It was, it was murder, you know, we're glad to get away from it. But I have met so many people in my farming career that say, man, I'd sure love to be, you know, running a farm too, if I could just figure out how to make a living. So there's a lot of people that would enjoy the lifestyle of a farm if you could make a fair living at it, but that's the hardest nut to crack. Uh, you know, I think it's a fair share of listeners to my my podcast. I hear from them ever so often and that they have other jobs and they're maybe desk bound, although those desks might be in their homes anymore. They may not have to be commuting like they did before the pandemic, but they're mm-hmm. uh, but nonetheless, they look out the window and they say, man, I wish I could have some livestock or I wish I could grow some crops. I wish I could be outside. Um and I think, fortunately, they keep track of hearing what's going on, you know, with um, some of my podcasts. Uh, there are people that have made the made the plunge. I'm sure you run into those people, too. And when you run into those kind of dreamers, Tom, and they say, boy, I wish I could be a farmer. What do you tell them? Well, I tell them it's, it's possible. But, you know, all, most of the young people I learned to, they want to go to Santa Cruz and do it, or they want to go to Sonoma County and do it, or everybody else in his uncle is trying to do it. The most, some of the most successful farmers that I know is a couple who uh, went back to Tulsa, Oklahoma, and uh, they bought a house and 20 acres for like $100,000. <laughs> decent house to live in, some decent farmland, and uh, they're, you know, doing a CSA and farmers markets for that local community which is desperate for good, fresh, um, organic produce. And uh, they're, they're rewarded very well. You know, they, they make a decent living. I mean, you know, probably again, no more than $100,000 net a year, but um, but they're living a lifestyle that they really enjoy and appreciate and, and they're serving the community. And so you gotta get out of the really famous, nice places. We could never attract interns to our farm it became very popular at a certain time to uh to have interns on your farm you know some ways it's a way to get free labor you know but it's a way to for young people to learn and uh, you know all, all all of those young kids would flock to the farms in santa cruz and 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 the nice places near the coast we could never we could never get them to come to our farm in madera or outside of fresno because it was you know 110 in the summer um but on the other hand, um, we weren't really too fond of getting labor that we didn't pay for anything for. Um, honestly, our all of our labor were um, basically immigrant folks from from Mexico, um, whom we formed, you know, quite a lovely community with. Um, when we were farming eighty acres up here in uh, Madera for the last twenty years, we had fifty full time year round employees on that eighty acres. And, uh, yeah, we were cranking, we were cranking a lot of produce out of there. And, uh, we had a really nice community of people that were as dedicated to the farm as we were. 
And uh, when we retired in 2017, that was the really toughest part of it, was to say goodbye to those folks. And um, most after we moved our farm to Madeira in 1995, almost all of our employees were immigrants from the state of Oaxaca in southern Mexico. Mm -hmm. These are actually indigenous people who only speak Spanish as a second language, and they have they have their own uh, native languages in that part of the world. And uh, boy, they were awesome workers. They were really really good people, really good partners. And like I say, it was very difficult to uh, to say goodbye to those folks when we in, decided in we had to roll up the rug, you know, because of my you know my age. Whatever you can't do it forever. <laughs> Sorry, I was going to say, any of those people that you used to hire, did any of them get their own farm started? Oh, yeah, that's kind of a story I wanted to tell today on your podcast. I was just out visiting a family who used to work for us maybe 15 years ago. And uh, they went off on their own, started their own farm, became certified organic. They probably farm about 20 acres today. Um and they worked their tails off. Oh my God! Yeah, it was probably would be easier for them to work for us again than <laughs> to to farm on their own. Um, so, you know, they have issues around language, of course, and uh, knowledge of how to conduct business in the United States of America. And so they've they and other former farm worker former farm workers who have their farms now they have a tendency to plug into wholesale markets. Um, uh, and so they're plugged into a wholesaler over in San Juan Bautista area that um, I was just astonished when my friend Javier told me that they're receiving $14 or two dozen bunches of chard. Um, when we were receiving closer to $25, in 2017 when we retired and in 2017 um, the wage that we had to pay was about 10 bucks and the wage that they're paying as of january is 16 dollars and so they are really struggling you know plus you can't even find the labor you know the labor is very scarce today as well mm -hmm. as way more expensive and uh so uh boy they're just running really hard in place to try to even survive and i just feel very badly for them um, because there are other people in the marketplace legacy farms that have a a big reputation that are selling that same product who doesn't charge today for 35 dollars and uh and they're getting 14 dollars from their wholesaler who then sells it to the larger marketplace and uh, it, it just it just does not work absolutely doesn't work. i don't know how they i don't know how they stay in business so how do you how do you explain that difference i mean did they not have access to get to the same people that they could sell direct to a retailer or somebody like that and get closer to the 35 dollars? yeah and and they don't have the reputation and maybe they, and they also they don't have the money to uh, make the best fertility inputs into their system. And so their product may actually be qualitatively um, less desirable than the product mm -hmm. from the legacy firm. There's a whole lot of factors, but the whole thing comes down to the fact that um, the organic movement has kind of been co-opted by the conventional food system. Mm. 
And so um, when they sell to this wholesaler, this wholesaler, even though they aggregate produce from a whole bunch of small farmers, they then have to compete with the 20 and 40,000 acre organic farms over in the central coast for the same products out there in the marketplace. And so they have to be very competitive with their prices and it just really drives drives the price down and um, it's not the way to support a small farm. Well, that's discouraging. You know, it used to be you talk well, to these young farmers and small, smaller farmers and they would say, one way they could do it is that they were able to sell retail rather than at wholesale price. Well, that that is correct, and I do encourage these kind of folks to sell retail. You got to either drive your drive a set of tires off of your pickup every year, go into farmers markets all over the country, or you or you start a CSA, um, deliver directly to your customers on a weekly basis. That's a lot of organization. To me, the only way to survive today as an organic farmer uh, of a a modest scale or small scale, you have to get very intimate with your customers. You have to take really good care of them and uh, feed them really good food and ask them and communicate to them why they should pay you a fair price for it. Is there kind of an optimal mix of how much might be CSAs versus, uh, you know, you can market online and you can do farmer's markets? you know, food hubs, you know, what is, yeah. what looks well, optimal. You, know, you can play around on the computer and do all kinds of e-commerce and everything. But when it comes to food, you actually got to get the product there physically to the people uh, one way or another. And if there's any great distance that has to be, you know, uh, crossed in order to do that, then, you know, you're paying FedEx or something. It gets to be very expensive. So I, I think that really the only way to do it well is to, serve a local community that's around you you know our csa we had 850 families that belonged to that um and but they were all within just barely over an hour's drive from the farm you know so so, uh, you know there was a time where we were hoping to have more respectability for say organic farming in particular for the small farmers for those outlets that we just wanted it to become more popular uh, and there was more demand, but then when it goes so far as you have, you know, Walmart as big as they are and Costco and the others, and then yeah. they, they've they got the scale to get, and they work then with larger scale farmers that are providing organic, but it competes, yeah. doesn't it, with the, with the, the two acre farm and yeah. Yeah, the specialty. Well, those entities find it inconvenient to work with a bunch of small farms, so they've actually in many cases, arm twisted, they're very large uh, farming suppliers to uh, require them even to grow organic produce, a certain percentage of organic produce, uh, even if the farms are not particularly interested uh, themselves in doing so. But in order to keep their contracts with those big marketers, uh, they, they do it. And in some cases, they don't do it very authentically. They They do it according to the letter of the law, but not the spirit of what the organic movement was about and often don't really adopt what we consider foundational practices of organic soil management, like uh, using compost and cover crops, um, um, because there's a lot of commercial uh, inputs now for organic farms that are organically certified that we didn't have access to back in the 1980s. But uh, 
you can farm out of a bucket and out of a bag organically now and cross the T's and dot the I's and be legally uh, compliant. But um, I don't think the general public appreciates and knows that that a lot of the produce in the major supermarkets is. You know, I remember talking to some people in the Midwest that were going to be organic farmers, and they just found it very difficult at the time to go organic uh they just felt like they needed a whole lot more help with some different using some different products but what they did find was successful is that they could have communications with uh, a customer so one one person would say no i'm not certified certified organic but when i explained to my best customers what it was i was doing and showed everything and why i did what i was doing they were fine with it so they were substituting with uh, explanation and communications, which you can do when you're one-on-one. You can't do if it's just a product that you're shipping at large scale to to Walmart or somebody like that. Oh, absolutely. You've got to have the third-party certifications. But if you're really intimate with your customers, uh, you don't need uh, you don't really need that or that expense. Um, you know the pre- the the couple that I was mentioning previously in uh, North Carolina. Although they farm very authentically, organic or, or you know, with organic practices, uh, as far as I'm, as far as I know, they're not certified organic. They don't really need to be because they, they, you know, they invite their customers on the farm several times a year. Sometimes they even help out with some of the work, and so people are very familiar with how they farm, and there's a great deal of trust there, and and intimacy, um, which supersedes all of these. Um, so-called um, certification schemes that uh, the larger marketplace requires you know for good reason they require it and yeah. hopefully most of it's pretty authentic i see i grew up in los angeles and my family lived in los angeles and uh when i got a wild hair to become a farmer <clears throat> i moved to fresno because i heard that was the best place to farm in, on the planet and in many respects it is and so uh when we decided uh when we, well when we first started farming in 1980, I was still a conventional farmer because I had learned conventional farming at Fresno State. Worked on several conventional farms to get my uh, to get my feet wet in agriculture, and then we decided to start our own farm in 1980. Got rolling in 1981, and I don't know, maybe in 1982 or something. Old uh, Governor Brown, who was at that time called Governor Moonbeam. He's, he cranked up the old farmer's market system again, which had completely gone dormant. There were no farmer's markets except one in San Francisco. Um, so he started farmer markets all over the all over the state, and Santa Monica was one of the flagship ones. We went there the first day it, it, uh, it, it, you know, it opened, and uh, my father retired from working at the city of Los Angeles during that period of time, so we uh, conscripted him to sell our vegetables. <laughs> We used to sell in about six or eight different farmers markets in LA every week, and uh, we would ship the produce to him. And we hired a little cold storage in the produce market, and he would go down there and load it on the truck and take it to market. So yeah, most farmers that go to farmers markets tell me that they have to go to three farmers markets to sell the kind of uh, the amount of product that we used to sell at at, at the Santa Mark in one day. So it's a, it's a more of a slog now than it used to be. That was, those were gravy days. Those were excellent days, the early days of the Santa Monica Farmer's Market. Yeah, I see some farmers up here at this Farmer's Market in Sacramento that are coming all the way from Watsonville, which is like three hours. 
And one of the uh, one young lady that I know brings a truck up and sets up a market, sometimes by herself, that she'll come into Sacramento. She's out by three o'clock in the morning uh, oh, yeah. and makes a couple stops getting the truck loaded up and drive up here all day and set up for the for the market. Boy, that's hard work. It's a killer. It's a killer. But and you have, some, you have they a, have to go to several. Yeah. If you have a larger extended family and you can spread that out, uh, you know, you, you can make it. I mean, we we did it for many years, but fortunately we had my father down there and, and uh, we, we loved working with him. My wife used to jump on the train and go down there and uh, spend several days a week with him uh, when they would do a couple of markets on the same day. And then she would return a couple of days later. We did that for a while. Originally, I drove a truck down there myself with that stuff. In fact, <laughs> the story that I do love to tell, it's wild. I don't know. The first new car that I ever bought was a, I think it was a 1974 Honda Civic, which is, looked a little bit, you know, kind of almost the shape of a Volkswagen Beetle, right? Yeah. So when that when the shine wore off of that car and we were farming, I, I pulled all the seats out of it except the driver's seat, the passenger seat in the front, the rear seat, and everything out. And I could stuff 22 bushel crates of okra, of all of okra into that <laughs> little Honda Civic. I would drive it to the market, the, the, the farmer's market in Pasadena, where there was a large um, population of uh, black folks and people from the South. And I could sell all of that okra in one afternoon for a really good price. <laughs> you know, and drive home. <laughs> we we have a really good soul food uh, market restaurant here in town called Fixins, and they just opened in L.A. And one of the best things they have is is fried okra, and I I just love it. It's uh, yeah, we love it too. But it, I, I I always say there's two kinds of people in the world. People that'll kill you to get some okra, and people that'll kill you if you try to give them some okra. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah. You, you know, I wanted to go back uh, just a couple couple things, and then we might need to be wrapping up. But one thing that's a little troubling: it's not all peaches and cream, and in the industry. And when you were given the example of your friends that what they're running up against right now, and you alluded to a couple of times, you were you were implying that. You know, we've had a stretch of pretty good times for people doing this, but it's not as good. Uh, we're going through a tougher time, and it's just the competition. I, I want to touch on that just a little bit more because it it sounds to me like it's a that perhaps people that are on this track have to get ready to explore some different tactics or work harder than ever or, you know, come up with some new strategies or something because succeeding going forward might be different than succeeding up to now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, actually, there are some, you know, things that are better about today because we have a lot more knowledge about how to successfully farm with organic methods. We have better inputs than we had uh, 30 years ago. And so the, on the production end, and, you know, we have support now from universities. Universities used to just laugh at us and make fun of us. Um, so the production end of it is actually easier and you can be better at it than, than we could um, 35 years ago. Um, but the marketing end of it is the big, the big difficulty. Um, and 
but you have to be very creative and you have to get out of the box and you know we actually those of us in the modern organic farming movement 40 years ago you know we dreamed of really creating a completely alternate food system uh, than the one that dominates our nation today and somehow or another because we were kind of driving for efficiencies and actually wanted to influence the larger production system you know we kind of you know we kind of the whale ate the guppy and we kind of got dragged into the uh, the conventional market capital intensive market system and uh it's not a real good income it's not a real good outcome uh, and so uh, i think we have to renew our efforts to create the um an alternate um system of how we feed our communities and so i think if you if you think very hard about that and 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 get close and intimate with your customers i think there's a, there's there's certainly a way to succeed today yeah what about scale are, are we you think it's it's you have to relook at size or you know i think actually it favors smaller scale now than it did when we were in it because the organic wholesale market is not really worth participating in too much uh at this time for a modest scale farm unless you're maybe going directly to the back door of a supermarket what you need to focus on is your local community and uh you know we were feeding uh 850 families all of their produce needs every week off of just 15 percent of what we were growing on our 80 acres the rest of it was going into the wholesale market wow um, so you can feed a lot of people off of a couple of acres if you're intensively producing. What does make you feel more optimistic about the next four or five years? Well, I do think climate change is going to be very disruptive to agricultural production all over the world and in this country. And we already see the consequences of that. And so uh, to have a very diversified farm with many different crops over uh, a number of different seasons, like you can do here in California, I think is going to be a much more secure way of uh, of adapting to the challenges of climate change in in the near future. And then, you know, ha having a good marriage with your community uh, to support you in that effort. Um, it's basically a continuous experiment of continuous improvement. And uh, I wouldn't want to be a monocultural farmer right now. Never did want to be one. Uh, but I think it's even more dangerous now than it was, you know, 20, 40 years ago to to have, be only growing a single crop or two crops. So um, there's a lot of inefficiencies in growing that many different crops on a small farm. But if you find the right marketplace for it um, and the support in your community for it, it's a it's a much more secure way to farm, particularly going into the kind of uncertain uncertain times that we're looking at uh, and and are going to intensify in the next decade or two you know tom i really appreciate your sharing your wisdom and what you've learned over the years i'm also glad you just don't stay home you're actually going to eco farm you're also on radio yourself eco farm i tell people when they say gee i want to learn more maybe i'm going to go in this direction i say go to eco farm it's coming up in the middle of january and you're going to be involved on in the in the program there as well and 
I would imagine you're responsible for have recruiting lots of people to EcoFarm over the years. Yeah, it's been a very supportive community for those of us who were trying to, you know, farm uh, without toxic inputs. I think next year or this, yeah, 2024, it's uh, from January 17th to 20th over in at the SLMR conference grounds in the Pacific Grove. It's going to be the 45th edition of EcoFarm. And uh, it's really been our university uh, <laughs> to, to learn organic farming systems for all of that period of time. And we welcome young people uh, who are interested. You can go on uh, eco.farm.org, I believe. I think it's eco-farm.org. Eco-farm, whatever. Just, just, yep. just Google eco-farm conference and just use eco-farm as a single yeah, word. The... Yeah, you'll, you'll get it. And uh, yeah, so we're doing... Uh, yeah, it's a really good community. Uh, it's attended by somewhere between a thousand and thousand five hundred people now. And uh, Selmar is a beautiful conference ground. There's farm tours. Uh, we're doing a, a whole day pre-conference on soil management and uh, the reduction of tillage and organic systems. There's probably about seventy different workshops on, you know, many different topics. And uh, yeah, it's a great place to to make community with people who are interested in. Uh, a different kind of food system that than the one that's uh, serving us not sort of well, but not so well. <laughs> no, no. So we we I, welcome people there. Yeah. And if people go, are interested, I, oh, I'm sorry. If oh, no, I'm just going to say I go often too, and I get enthused, but then yeah. I always slow down when I figure out that I don't want to work that hard. But aside yeah, from that, a, I get enthused. It's a great place to learn and party as well. So, <laughs> yeah, well, maybe that's the part I like. Um, yeah, and if you, if you might be interested in my radio show, it's on KFCF 88.1 FM in Fresno. And uh, if you don't catch it on the radio every first Friday of the month at 5 p.m., you can go on our farm website, which still exists. It's called T as in Tom, D as in Don, Willie Farms, W-I-L-L-E-Y, uh, .com. And uh, all the all the radio shows are posted there. You can listen to them at your convenience. Well, and then this conversation with you will be evergreen here on Farm to Table Talk. So people can see farmtotabletalk.com or they can hear us wherever they get podcasts. And I appreciate the conversation. Look forward to seeing you at EcoFarm. And Tom Welly, thanks for being on Farm to Table Talk. Well, thank you for the invitation. I've really enjoyed talking to you today and uh, sharing the little I know. Uh, one of my mentors says, no matter how knowledgeable we are, we're always guaranteed to be a billion times more ignorant than we are knowledgeable. So I, I know about that much, and, and, and I've appreciated your interest in me sharing it with your audience today. You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. 